colleague Laura Johnston is not with us today because she's trying to get some skiing in before spring starts, which could be any day now. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin and Layla Tassi, and we're going to begin with one of our favorite subjects, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan. He led a bunch of his colleagues in a caravan of vehicles in search along the Mexican border for people entering the United States illegally to put a spotlight on what he says is a big problem. Layla, did what he and his colleagues found reinforce their immigration apocalypse messaging or refute it? Oh, they didn't see anything. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure much to their chagrin, they, they didn't catch this parade of people sneaking across the Arizona, Arizona border as they expected to see. They patrolled along the entry port of San Luis, uh, which is a dam um, uh, a dam along the Colorado River and, and more desolate sections of the U.S. border between Arizona and, and Mexico. But their their search came up totally empty. Hours later, the immigration officials in that area did spot a, a group crossing north, but it was long after these congressional members had gone. And so this is a group, uh, this group is a, a House Judiciary Committee convoy to the border that Jordan led. He's the chairman of the committee. And no Democrats came along for this ride. Surprise, surprise. They they declined. Um, and, uh, um, you know, th- there was more than a dozen congressional Republicans did go and a large contingent of staffers and a handful of reporters. The Democrats kind of saw this as a stunt and they said that they'll make their own visit to the border to hear from real people and government officials on the ground. But Jordan's group was was told that about 4,000 4, immigrants cross the U.S. border near this area each day. But perhaps the fact that this envoy was in a dozen cars, some of them clearly marked as police vehicles, had something to do with the fact that they saw absolutely no conspicuous activity at the border at all. Think, think about the, the joke that this is. You know they had visions of them you know, it being, being videoed with... with you know, caravans in the background of people coming into the country illegally. They were looking for their big video moment, you know, so Tucker Carlson could go large about the, we have just a circus coming across and they get nothing, which makes them look like stooges, 12 cars in search of people crossing the border and they come up with what scorpions it's hilarious they what were they thinking was going to be like army ants in the jungle just rushing across they look like clowns and it just it shows everything that is wrong with what jim jordan is trying to do i know it's all about stunts it's all about video it's all about you know news bites and he looks like a jackass today because it didn't happen. And so now the attention is, you mean you got all these people to go down and find immigrants because you say it's such a disaster and basically you got what? Nothing. Yeah. Are they going to do this for multiple days or, or was this, <laughs> are they going to try to stretch this out over a week of uh, busting immigrants at the border? Because I'd love to see more of this. <laughs> let's let's this go. Let's like... do five nights in a row of sitting out in the cold. uh <laughs> desert night waiting for people this is this was like uh, geraldo with the vault <laughs> exactly <right? I> mean, 
That's exactly like it. It just, you look so dumb and it was all predictable. I mean, 12 vehicles inviting the media. So you're guaranteed to have a spotlight on, you're not really doing your job here. Right. This is not what the job of the congressman is to do. You're supposed to be solving problems instead of getting your sound bites. Yeah. You, you better, you better know exactly what you're going to find if you're going to put together this kind of show. <laughs> I know. You look ridiculous. It's Today in Ohio. The Larry Householder corruption trial has put a spotlight on a very real problem for the state, Ohio's weak rules for legislators on reporting gifts. Lisa, how do other states do it better? They a lot of states do it better, and this this issue actually came to light during former Larry Householder aide Jeff Longstress testimony, which has gone on this week, and it centered on a five hundred thousand dollar quote unquote loan to householder that actually falls into a gray area of Ohio state law concerning gifts to lawmakers. So current state law says that all gifts were $75 or more must be reported. If it's a gift from a lobbyist, it has to be $25 or more, but they don't have to describe the gift or list the specific amount. So if Longstreth gave, you know, householder $500,000, it could have been only $5 reported. They There's no specific amount, you know, required. The National Conference of State Legislatures, which is a nonpartisan research group, says at least six states set a cap on gifts from $20 in South Carolina to $250 in Alaska and California. Uh, other states that have caps are Colorado, Virginia, and Washington that fall within that 20 to 250 range. And then other states like Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, and Connecticut bar lawmakers from accepting a g- gifts above a certain value, and that includes their family members as well. Now, House Bill 6 hasn't really spurred any new ethics laws. There was a campaign finance transparency bill that failed to advance after the scandal. Um, The House GOP, though, is proposing an ethics reform bill right now with more disclosure of lobbying expenses, and that includes uh, members of the Public Utilities Commission as well. So we'll see if that passes muster. Well, I, you know, I've lived in places where they had much tighter rules, and it is kind of astounding that you can give anything you want to a legislator and the public never finds out about it. I mean, we've seen it now in multiple scandals. We saw it in the Jimmy DeMora case. We've seen it here. I mean, the, the prosecutors are saying, this is phony baloney. This wasn't a gift. This was a bribe. His defense is it was a gift that mm-hmm. he barely reported. He didn't even report it in real time. And the guy who gave him the money says it's not a gift. He, 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 it was kind of a loan and ended up the money. I never got paid back because he basically told me you were made good by the, the money from the bribe. But, but it's wrong that, that a, you, can, you can steer a politician so easily by giving them a, a huge amount of money without ever telling anybody. Um, is there, well, I know the answer to this. There's no effort, right, to fix this. Well, like I said, there is this ethics reform bill that's moving through the General Assembly right now that's calling for more disclosure, but but there's nothing in this bill right now about disclosing the details of gifts. And in this case, the devil was in the details. Yeah, it was big time in the details. It's really quite wrong. I'm a little bit surprised that uh, Mike DeWine isn't even championing this because this is just bad government. You you undermine the confidence of people in government with this kind of stuff. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Is anyone else as confused as I am by the preliminary report on the East Palestine train derailment? I still don't understand what happened, except that it involved one seriously overheated bearing. Layla, we were talking about this in the newsroom, mm-hmm. trying to decipher this confusing mess of a report to figure out what exactly happened. We think we came up with it, but what does the report it say? It is confusing. Well, we know that that 38 of the 149 rail cars had derailed, and that included 11 that contained hazardous materials. The report says that the train was traveling below the speed limit when it derailed. It was going 47 miles per hour. The maximum there was 50. The report doesn't specifically say what caused the derailment, but it said that investigators are, are still focusing on the wheels and an overheated bearing on the train's 23rd rail car, which was the first one to derail. The railroad system for detecting overheated bearings recorded increasingly higher temperatures for that bearing as the train was approaching East Palestine. One of the readings was at 38 degrees above the ambient temperature, the second at 103, and the third was at 253. An inspection is is called for when the temperature is between 170 degrees and 200 above the ambient temperature. So this was clearly becoming a problem. A temperature reading above 200 degrees is deemed critical. So 253 I mean, I think they've zeroed in on on something here, obviously. But the confusing part is that the report says that as the train passed the third detector, it transmitted a critical audible alarm message instructing the crew to slow down and stop the train to inspect a hot axle. The train engineer increased the dynamic brake application to further slow and stop the train. During this deceleration, an automatic emergency brake application initiated and train 32N came to a stop. So how did it derail if it came to a stop? I, I, I don't know. I don't know what, what, what's, that's the part that, that throws me. And what we speculated on, and it's total speculation, is that the front part of the train came to a stop. The bad bearing caused the cars that derailed to disconnect from the front part of the train and derail and fall all over themselves. And then the cars behind that eventually didn't get derailed. But but you kept reading it going, well, wait, if the train stopped, how did it derail? I mean, if you come to a stop, you're coming to a stop. Mm-hmm. It never said it stopped when it derailed. It said the brakes engaged, the train came to a stop, and then it starts talking about the derailment. And it's like, man, this is more confusing than than pretty much anything I've seen come from the government. So we'll have to keep pushing. But I, I suspect that that's what it's about. The brakes on the cars that worked stopped those cars the bad bearing and 253 degrees. That was pretty hot. Failed. The whole, that thing went off the rails. It took other cars with it and fire and disaster and smoke. They need better writers at the. Yes, they do. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Nonprofit agencies are supposed to be about mission, but some people who run them make a lot of money coordinating the missions. Which nonprofits are paying the most? And how many nonprofit employees in Northeast Ohio get paid more than a million bucks, Lisa? Well, in the greater Cleveland area, 38 people in nonprofit organizations are in the, what they call the $1 million club. They're all at University Hospitals, Cleveland Clinic, Summa Health, and Akron Children's Hospital, all hospitals, and one at Case Western Reserve University. These figures are from a 2019 Internal Revenue Service filings. They include income from 1099 and W-2 forms, including base pay, bonuses, and other income. Number one, 
in the number of employees, and the number one employee is the Cleveland Clinic. They have 18 employees that are making a ton of dough. And the president and CEO, Tomislav Mahalovic, makes 3.2 or made 3.2 million plus $45,000 in additional benefits. Like I said, he's the highest paid nonprofit person in this area. Number two is University Hospital CEO, Thomas Zenti III, who is retired. He retired in 2021. 2.6 million for him plus 760,000 in added benefits and 438,000 from a non-qualified qualified retirement plan. The only uh, university person or non-health person was Case Western Reserve University President Barbara Snyder. She is the highest paid outside the medical field and number six overall on the list at $1.9 million plus $251,000 in benefits and $250,000 in deferred compensation. Yeah, and she has since been replaced, but this is the report for the latest year for which it was available. I guess it's not a surprise that people in the health field are making that kind of money, uh, but they are supposed to be about the mission. So it's we've talked a lot about healthcare uh, leader compensation because of what happened at Metro Health with the ousted CEO, Akram Boutros. Who didn't make the list. Boutros or Metro, <laughs> oh, neither of them made the list. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm just going to leave that one there. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the mood of Cleveland bike advocates after state representative top Tom Patton dropped his sneaky plan to block a popular bike lane project planned on Superior Avenue in downtown Cleveland. Later, we talked about this yesterday because he had no business involving himself. Although Lisa did mention afterwards, the price for this bike path is astronomical mm-hmm. for the size of it. Anyway, what are bike advocates saying? They're, they're pretty happy about this development. Patton's amendment to the trans- state transportation budget bill would have prohibited cities with a population of 300,000 or more from adding bike lanes to the middle of a street or highway. And had that been approved by the legislature before the March 31st deadline for approval of the state's budget, this amendment would have totally killed the, the midway. And the midway is, for those who are just catching up a fully funded $24.5 million project that's been in the works for 12 years. It, it seeks to install a raised bike lane on the center of Superior Avenue that extends 2.4 miles east from Public Square to East 55th Street. And it has received all kinds of support so far. It's getting $19.6 million in federal grants. Um, and uh, uh, it gets matching funds from the city of Cleveland. Construction is supposed to be beginning in 2025 after they complete a detailed design of it, this Patton's amendment wouldn't just affect the Midway, though. It would have also created problems for future projects that are planned in other cities. So I think that also weighs into this. But he was inundated with letters from constituents and public officials asking him to withdraw this amendment. Local officials here in Cleveland saw it as an affront to home rule. Downtown Cleveland Alliance, Destination Cleveland, and the Greater Cleveland Partnership also spoke out against it. But it sounds like it was Grace Gallucci, the executive director of, of NOACA, who was able to sway him. She was able to reassure him that that any of his concerns about whether the bike lane would impede the path of first responders would eventually be addressed during the design phase. And so he withdrew it. Well, you said he got he heard from constituents. He doesn't represent anybody affected by this. They're not his constituents. He was meddling in something. Uh, yeah, he right. had True. no 
business meddling in. And I still don't buy that he just became concerned for first responders in an area he has no business talking about. I think somebody along this path who was affected went to him and said, help me. And then he, without ever talking to the people involved, snuck in this Mm -hmm, amendment. mm -hmm. And once it got called out, he ran away with his tail between his legs. But it is, and his, his objections had nothing to do with the expense of it. The expense of it does seem high. When Lisa pointed that out, we also heard from some listeners that that's a lot of money for this thing. Yeah, it's like $11 million a mile. Yeah. That's what, a- do we know why? Like, what is it about this that makes it so pricey? Well, it's the city. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. But interestingly, I thought, you know, the bike advocates, they're really focused on this, you know, the silver lining here. They they not only defeated Patton's amendment, but this whole controversy brought their cause more into the light. So more people are aware of the Midway Project than they were before. And it's on account of, of uh, what Patton tried to do here. So they see that as a good thing. Look, it's scary these days to ride a bike on roadways, cars turning right, knock people down and you know, bikes and cars. There's only one real loser in that. It's the person on the bike. By putting these lanes down the center, you take away a lot of that. It makes it much more safe. And if we want to attract people to be downtown or to commute downtown, we've got to make it safe. And this is what that's about. It just does seem staggering the cost of this. It doesn't seem like it should be that expensive. And I know that some people along that corridor are concerned about losing the ability to make a left-hand turn. I mean, I don't know how you make a left turn across a center bike lane safely. Well, it'll be, it'll be open. I mean, the, the, the bikes still have to follow the traffic lights. So when the light turns red on superior, you stop at the cross street and the cross street traffic, uh, then turns. I mean, the, 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 the problem is a lot of bicyclists don't pay attention exactly, to those traffic lights. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and that, yeah, and that, that could be a problem. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How are some Cleveland organizations thinking data might provide solutions for the city's gun violence problems? Lisa, earlier in the week, we talked about straw purchases dumping a lot of guns illegally into the street. This is a whole different approach. Yeah, everyone's turning towards data-driven crime control. The Cleveland Center for Cleveland-based Center for Health Affairs, along with Amazon Web Services, is establishing a database to address the social determinants of health, including gun safety and gun violence. And uh, they're creating a new innovation hub. So they're going to be gathering data from several Northeast Ohio researchers, businesses, and organizations. And this is a part of a global effort. So the web services infrastructure by Amazon will be used to build what's called a data lake that's stored in a central depository in the cloud. This allows for rapid analysis of all the data that's in the cloud that can detect trends and patterns that can help shape health policies and aid in decision making. So the first focus of this database is gun violence and behavioral health, but then other focuses down the line will be housing, digital connectivity, climate change, and food insecurity. Uh, CHA President Brian Lane says they currently have 120 collaborative partners and they're adding more. And they have been collecting data for several months in advance of this. And Amazon is donating the cloud hosting and CHA and their affiliates are funding the other costs, but they have declined to specify what those costs are. 
Yeah, it's it, the more you analyze the data, you might come up with some answers. I think that was what the straw purchase are, uh, debate was about. The, the federal government has come up with a measure that if a gun is used within three years of a purchase in a crime, that it was probably bought by somebody legally and handed to somebody that shouldn't have it. That's all about studying patterns. And so the more you can study patterns, you might be able to find more solutions. And this kind of dovetails with Mayor Justin Bibbs. You know, he's wanting to put uh, civilian uh, data analysts at all the five substations here in Cleveland so they can crunch that data and and get better ideas of, you know, where crime is occurring and how to even prevent it possibly. Yeah, it's it's an interesting tactic. You're listening to Today in Ohio. One of the more striking moments of the May 30th, 2020 riot in downtown Cleveland was someone torching a parking attendance booth. There was video of it and you could see him doing it and then waiting for it to catch fire. How much time will the man who did it spend in prison and what was his interesting <laughs> cause for his misbehavior? He's he's getting two years in federal prison for conspiring to commit arson. The prosecutors say this guy, 51-year-old Seth Kalig, lit a roll of paper towels on fire and then dropped it into this parking booth on West 3rd Street. He and then a group of others stood around waiting for the booth to ignite. In court, he blamed his actions on testosterone. (laughs) He said that he had struggled for years with drug addiction, and then he heard an advertisement on the radio for men with low testosterone and decided to buy this drug from a coworker. He had injected it into his thigh that morning, and he said it kicked in when he reached downtown Cleveland. He had picked up his son from work and drove downtown, and there he encountered this chaotic scene. The police were firing tear gas and rubber bullets and People were setting police cruisers on fire and breaking windows, and he basically said he was just overcome by mania induced by the testosterone and and the intensity of the scene. He also said he was upset by the death of George Floyd, but but you know he he mostly it was the testosterone. <laughs> so his eighteen year old son watched as he torched this booth, and his son later ended up getting fired from his job after photos circulated of him at the scene. His Kalig's lawyers tried to make a case for house arrest as opposed to prison, but the judge wasn't having it. Well, he was one of the key key people in the riot. I mean, you're not supposed to burn down property the way he did. And it seems like in each of these cases, the sentences have been fairly stiff, but I think it does send a statement. This is the final final action for the people charged in this. Everybody has now been adjudicated and sentenced. Yeah, that's right. Three others were sentenced to between three and four years in prison. One died of an overdose after pleading guilty in his case, and two had their charges dropped. And then there were dozens of others who were charged in county or muni court, but most of those cases ended in fines or, or they dropped the charges. It's amazing. The testosterone defense. It's just, <laughs> we had two yeah. examples yesterday <laughs> of drugs being used. That case down in South Carolina where the guy's accused of killing his wife and kid is blaming opioids for it. It's such a convenient excuse. Yep. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Why did Lordstown Motors pause production of its electric trucks? And Lisa, I don't think we're going to be able to answer this, but my reading of the story tells me that they've only built like 11 trucks so far? Yeah, not too many. There's only really 19 vehicles out there in the world right now. Um, But uh, Lordstown Motors says that they're looking into production and safety issues with certain truck parts for the endurance uh, electrical uh, pickup truck. And they say that that may mean redesigning or retrofitting these parts and updating the software. Software, but they think that there's an electrical issue that could cause the truck to lose propulsion while it's driving. So they temporarily halted production of all endurance pickups. They issued a recall for those already produced. There are only 19, like I said, out there in the world right now. Uh, the CEO of Lordstown Motors, Edward Hightower, says, we're making significant progress in addressing issues affecting our build schedule, and they're going to reveal more details in their March 6th earning call. But the endurance was designed for commercial commercial fleets and they were ramping up production very slowly and they were sending these trucks to customers who may make larger purchases down the line. I I was just thrown by the small number made. Uh, That almost sounds like prototypes. And Mm -hmm. uh, when you, when you think about the video you've seen of, of auto manufacturers, they're cranking those things out. There's a, it's usually this big assembly line and it's rolling along. I don't know. What are they doing? Are they building these things by hand? Oh, I don't know, but it's maybe they're just gauging the, the market, you know, because like I said, they are focusing on commercial fleets where they can sell large numbers of vehicles to one customer. But yeah, it sounds a little bit slow. I don't know. With 19 trucks on the road, it doesn't seem like you need to make an announcement that you're pausing production because production really has yet to start. But very interesting story. I guess they have to report it to the government when they're doing a recall, and that's why it gets announced like that. It's today in Ohio. Hey, Layla, is Cleveland Heights charging an illegal fee to landlords who don't live in the city? Well, um, there that you could make a case for that as part of as part of their building and housing code. Cleveland Heights has been assessing a one hundred dollar fee for landlords who live outside of Cuyahoga County. And the, this, there's a nonprofit law organization called 1851 Center for Constitutional Law, and they filed suit in federal court last month on behalf of Soul Houses LLC and other parties who own rental properties in Cleveland Heights and have been assessed this fee. And this nonprofit says that this this fee is unconstitutional and appears to be unprecedented in the state. They argue that out-of-town landlords are getting fleeced by this without representation in the government and and that this fee is being applied arbitrarily to them. They say there's no evidence connected with it that that the out-of-town landlords are harming the city. And in fact, the fee could end up hurting tenants if landlords increase rent to account for the fee. The city hasn't commented on this besides issuing a statement that just says that the city has a, a number of housing and you know building codes to protect the city's housing stock and the neighborhoods and safety and welfare of the community. So we'll see how it turns out. I don't know. I'm, I'm torn on this one. Let's just kick the one argument right out the window where they say they don't have representation in the city. We Many of us pay taxes to cities where we have zero representation. It's the municipal income tax you pay where you work. But there are difficulties, as we've talked about in the past, of dealing with absentee landlords. And it, it, it's much more difficult to find those folks when there are problems 
and it costs the city's money to do that. Is that wrong then to say, look, if you're going to be part of that problem, we're going to bill you extra money to pay for the trouble you're causing. If you live in the city, they can find you because you're there. I'm, I'm not sure what the argument is against this. Well, I mean, imagine that you are, you know, a landlord who lives in in a different, you know, suburb right out. Like, say you live in Lorain County, you own property in, in Cleveland. You know, I don't know. I, I just, I do think it sounds unfair to me that you would be painting all landlords who live outside of the county with the same broad brush, assuming that, you know, they all have to bear the responsibility for the irresponsible landlords. I mean, it'd be similar to tacking on a fee for, you know, tenants because some of them are are crappy tenants who abuse the property, and you, they're all going to pay for it. I mean, yeah, I see. I see the argument. It does. It does I, feel I, a little arbitrary. I wonder if there's already a business fee for landlords overall. That if you're conducting business in the city of Cleveland Heights, you have to pay some fee to license yourself to do business that covers everybody. Uh, that would negate this. It's just an interesting tactic. We know cities are having a hard time. Cleveland is having a nightmare mm. dealing with out-of-town landlords that that let their places fall apart and then are nearly impossible to find. It creates a, a huge bureaucracy at housing court. But maybe you're right. Maybe this isn't the I mean, solution. or charge the fee across the board equally. Just charge all landlords a, a, an administrative fee that covers, you know, any work that the building and housing department needs to do. I, yeah. I could get behind that, you know, because there was a story just this week about a guy who lived in Cleveland Heights and the people in his apartment unit were without heat for like a couple months and he kept ducking, you know, and he lived right there in the city. So he wasn't a very good landlord. Good point. Good point. Yeah. You can be a terrible landlord and live in the county. <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of them. It'll be interesting to see how this one ends up in the litigation it's today in Ohio. That's it for the week. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Monday talking about some pretty powerful stories that we have coming over the weekend. Have a good one.